Father, we thank you so much just that we have time, space, and opportunity to worship you. God, we don't think that it's too much to come together and worship, to lift up your name, to remember your faithfulness over the years. In fact, God, we believe, as the song reminds us today, that you deserve it. You deserve our highest honor, our praise. You deserve our very lives. So God, receive our worship today. God, I thank you for these, your people, who come into this place dealing with many different circumstances, at many different places on the journey with you. But God, because of your love for us, you meet us right where we are. But God, you're even more gracious than that. You don't leave us where we are. So thank you for where you are taking us, how you are growing us, how you are maturing us. Help us to see it and to trust you and to say every day, yes, yes, Lord. We pray these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Sanctuary. My name is Edrin, one of the associate pastors here, and it is an honor and a privilege to have this chance to stand before you. Um, if you're here today and this is your first time, we want to again say welcome to the sanctuary. We hope that you will uh, make your way to the welcome desk after service just get to get to know us a little bit more and allow us to get to know you a little bit more as well. Uh, last week, we kicked off a new series as we uh, moved into the fall here at the sanctuary called Generosity. Uh, generous God, Generous People. It's a generosity series where we wanted to know what does it mean for us to uh, respond to the fact that God is a generous, has always been generous, his character and nature is to be generous. So what does it mean for us as a church to respond to that generosity? And last week's message uh, reminded us that we are already generous in a number of ways and that we now get to together as a church wrestle with what does it mean for us to be collectively generous I'm sure if I looked at your life your personal finances your personal volunteer hours there are already a number of places where you're where you're committed and serving but what does it mean for us as a collective as a church to be able to say that we are a generous church so we begin today uh, by looking at one of what we introduced last week as the five generosity expressions. There are five ways in which people tend to express their generosity, and we'll take a look at those in a little bit. But before we do, uh, we first want to just get a very clear sense of what do we mean when we say generosity. And so when we talk about generosity, we're simply talking about these, the, the words on the screen. We're talking about giving to others. We're talking about offering up ourselves, uh, our time, our talent, our treasure for the glory of God and the good of someone else. When we, uh, we looked last week at a survey that was produced by Thriving Financial in the Barner Group uh, that gave us when they surveyed many people back in 2016 as a part of a church study, they found that there are five main ways in which people generally express their generosity. That'll appear on the screen here. Uh, the most popular way for most people to express their generosity is through service and volunteering. That's the darker blue that you see there. 
About 32% of the population says, when I think about generosity, the most natural way for me to be generous is to serve someone. That is to do something for them with no expectation of being paid for it. The second most popular way was emotional support. That is to simply be there for one another. This is something that millennials, young adults, are very good at. They, they tend to, uh, they have space in their lives in many ways, to, but they also make space in their lives to be there for one another. The third way of the five is money or financial giving. And this was the one that for, for many of us, when we think about generosity, this is the one that makes us a bit squeamish. This is the one that tends to be taboo. And today we're going to talk about why that might be. The fourth way was hospitality, inviting people, making them feel welcome, preparing a meal for someone, bringing them into your home and getting to know them that way. This was very popular in the early church, the early church that we'll mention later today. But this is still of the five, one of the five ways that people express their generosity. And then the least popular, and I shared last week that I'm glad this is actually the least popular, uh, is gifts. Buying someone a gift as a way of expressing your generosity. I'm, I, I was very grateful that my wife was here and saw this with you all last week. And so I think I'm off the hook for a few uh, weeks at least. Um, <laughs> you know her. You <laughs> I'm glad you know my wife. But today, uh, we want to actually uh, focus in on the third one, money, because we know, regardless of what we're saying, many of you think we're ultimately talking about money. And so I suggested to our teaching team that I go ahead and take this one and get it out of the way (laughs) so that you guys could focus for the rest of the series on the other expressions of generosity. And so today we're going to actually talk about money as an expression of generosity, and we're going to wrestle with what that means for our life together as a church. We also are talking about money because money touches every other aspect of our lives. Money is a taboo subject for many because when we talk about money, we are touching on many cultural and personal beliefs. When we talk about money, we're talking about issues of security and identity. And so for someone to say, we would like you to give more money, some of us hear that, and what we really hear is that we want you to be less secure. But that seems to be counter to the way in which the biblical writers talked about generosity through financial giving. Here's what I've seen through my studies and through life experiences and through uh, several, a decade and a half of ministry, It, it is that our views of money And our views of God are often involved in an intricate little dance. So much so that it's hard for us to honestly talk about one without the other. According to the research, when we talk about giving uh, through money and through financial giving, there are a couple groups within our population who tend to express this more naturally. There are boomers and elders, our, our older generation. They are married individuals. They are retirees and those with household incomes above 150000 a year. But here's what I would like to suggest to us today. Generosity through financial giving is not just something for rich people. 
It's not just for those who see themselves as secure. And, and I'm glad that the research supported this because when Barna looked at this question, what they found is that people who give through financial means, who give financially and express their generosity that way, they are likely to feel secure regardless of their actual income level. And so you can be making $25,000, which is about the average in the community that we call home here, and you can still be generous. Or you could be making 250000 and still feel that I don't have enough to be generous. So generosity is about a lot more than simply your income level. People who give naturally through financial means, they tend to function out of an attitude of abundance as opposed to an attitude of scarcity. And there's always been a tension, especially within the church, to say, if I give my money, does that mean I don't have to serve? The research says that those who give also tend to be those who serve the most. There are two lies that get in the way of our financial generosity. The first is this. I don't have anything to give. We, we equate generosity, as I said, with richness. And regardless of how much money you have, you always see a person with a little bit more as perfectly set up to be generous. And so if I was making $200,000, we might say, if I was making two fifty, dollars then I could be generous. I, I could work out some cushion and be generous. Or if I was making $2 million, perhaps I was playing for the twins or somebody else, they would say, my teammate, that pitcher, He makes enough to be generous. Me, I'm just scraping by. And the first lie we tell ourselves is that if I only had a little more of this, then I would be generous. If God had just blessed me with this, then I could be generous. And that we use that as a way of refusing to press into financial generosity. The second lie that we tell ourselves, and this is the one that might get me in a little trouble today, but hey, you guys are quiet, so I might as well go for it. Uh, The second lie we tell ourselves is that the American way when it comes to finances is always the biblical way. The American way is the biblical way. That's what we we tell ourselves. We, We have come to the place in our lives where we often think that the way that society says to think about money is the biblical way, so that when we, are, uh, we, are, uh, we approach the biblical way of handling finances, then that feels shaky in some way. When we look at the ways in which the early church cared for one another through sharing their possession, we call that communism and socialism. And then when we look at the American way of making as much as you can and not telling anybody, not giving anybody permission to speak into your finances, we see that as somehow biblical. Here's here's what the American way says. What's mine is mine. I earned it all on my own. I don't owe anybody any explanation about anything. Friends, today, we're going to try to unlearn some ideals about finances that are more American than they are biblical. Can the church say amen? Amen. Here's, Here's what I know. 
that it's important for us to get this idea of financial generosity right because it is fundamental to our discipleship as followers of Jesus. And what we do with our possessions is a clear indicator of what we believe about the bigger, more fundamental questions in life. And so as with all things, we look to God's word for guidance, for wisdom, for insight, knowing that God's word teaches us, guides us, it corrects us, and it gives us wisdom for living this life. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. The book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32, it'll also appear on the screen. But we're calling this message today, Our Koinonia and Our Coins. At first, I was going to call it our, our unity and our possessions. That, that, that's essentially what I'm saying. The unity that we have spiritually and what we do with our possessions is what we're going to talk about. But there is this concept of koinonia that I want us to press into today, which is a much deeper understanding of Christian fellowship. And what we believe about Christian fellowship will undoubtedly affect what we do with our possessions. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Here's what God's word says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." I want to ease a few tensions. I don't see myself as an apostle. <laughs> there are no apostles in our church. And I feel no, feel no pressure today to ever or any day to take anything and put it at any of our feet. That's not the goal. I don't need a jet. <laughs> I, 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 that's a part of what makes this conversation weird, isn't it? That we've seen in society that some people misuse scripture to take advantage of people. And our overreaction to those instances has been to say, we probably shouldn't talk about money. But Jesus talked about money as much as he talked about almost any other subject. And so we've got to talk about it as disciples of Jesus. Here's what the book of Acts is really about. The book of Acts is part two of this guy Luke's testimony of the life and the teachings of Jesus. You see, Luke was a co-laborer and a traveling partner of the Apostle Paul. And in part one of Luke's writing, which is the Gospel of Luke, he begins to look in a narrative form at Jesus' teachings and Jesus' actions. And so he says to us here in the intro to the book of Acts, he says that, in essence, this is a continuation of the work that I began back in the Gospel of Luke, which would offer insight into what Jesus said and what he did. And in this book, I'm talking to you about what Jesus did post-resurrection and what Jesus taught in the 40 days between the time he was resurrected and the time he returned to the Father in heaven. And so this book early on takes us into a deep dive into what Jesus did over those 40 days and the ways that he taught the disciples about this new concept, this concept that he had hinted about before, which was the kingdom of God. 
Jesus had always claimed that he had come to help restore God's kingdom over the world. And he called the Jews, Israel, and eventually all people to follow after him. Now that message and that assignment ultimately led Jesus to a cross where he died and was resurrected after three days. Here in the book of Acts chapter one, we find the resurrected Jesus and his disciples, and he's teaching them about life in the kingdom. The disciples were good Jews in many cases, and they wanted to know Jesus, if you are the Messiah, when will you restore our kingdom? When will you you overthrow Rome and restore things to the way that the prophecies seem to say they would be? And Jesus said to them, it's not your business to know when those things will happen or how they will happen. He says to them, instead, I will give you power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the world. And after sharing this, Luke describes the moment when Jesus is taking up from among them into the heavens to reign with God and with the promise that he would one day return. That's a bit of the context of the book of Acts. But the book of Acts continues in many ways to tell the story of what Jesus taught and how his teachings continued through the Holy Spirit after he went back into heaven. The book of Acts is separated into three major sections. The first section, which we're going to look at today, chapters two through seven, here's, here's Luke's way of saying here's what happened with the gospel as it spread in the area of Jerusalem. The local context of these believers, here's what happened as the gospel took root there. Chapters 8 through 12 of the book of Acts tells us what happens as the gospel begins to spread to a secondary area, Judea and Samaria among non-Jewish people. And chapters 13 through 28 describes what happens as the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. And our text today focuses on that first section as the early followers of Jesus received the Holy Spirit and began to live as witnesses in Jerusalem. Here's what Luke tries to get us to see very early. He gets us to see that the people, the family of God, are the new temple. Now, for most of us, that means nothing. But to a good Jew, When they heard about the ways in which Luke would describe the people of God, they knew Luke was challenging their traditional teachings. Luke describes in the book of Acts chapter 2 the way in which the Holy Spirit came upon the people at Pentecost. You'll remember that Jews from all over the diaspora were in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes and it falls on the disciples in the form of a mighty wind and something like tongues of fire rested on the disciples. And all of a sudden, they begin to speak in languages that are foreign to them, but those visiting from other lands understand them perfectly. The disciples begin to share testimonies, and they begin to say and point others towards the wonders of God. And those Jews visiting the city recognize that something is happening, but they are also confused. The scriptures describe them as being bewildered, Amazed, perplexed, and some even say they are drunk. 
As I'm reading through the book of Acts, I'm reading this line where some say they've had too much wine. And I wonder if Jamie Foxx read the book of Acts chapter two and they wrote the song, Blame It on the Alcohol. I, I do wonder if this is where he received his inspiration. You should ask questions when you read the scriptures. It's, it's good for that scene there in Acts chapter two is descriptive but it's also deeply instructional. In the Old Testament, you see one of the ways in which the the new kingdom and the Messiah's kingdom was described was to say that when this new kingdom came, once the Messiah's kingdom was established on the earth, God's presence and glory would rest in this new temple. The, The prophecy said that God would, by God's spirit, take up residence in the new temple. And so Jews, because they were good Jews, assumed that this temple would be a building, one that exceeded the majesty of the one built by King David. But Luke seems to be suggesting here early in Acts chapter 2 that the temple was not a structure, but a people. That everything that the Old Testament had promised would happen in the temple would actually happen through this new covenant family that Jesus had established. This temple, this people of God would be where heaven and earth met and people will encounter God's generosity and God's healing presence through the people of God. You might be asking yourself, why does any of this matter to what we're talking about today? And here's here's I'm going to try to say it as clearly as I can. You and I, brothers and sisters, are. Today's representation of what Luke was painting a picture of in Acts chapter 2. We are the people of God. We are the holy temple of God. And the prophecies and the ways that the, the, the temple was described in the Old Testament, you and I are a part of expressing that in the world today. One of the ways that the temple was described was to say that when people came to the temple with needs, they would encounter God there. They would encounter God's generosity in the temple and their needs would be met there in the temple. And if Luke is really suggesting that you and I are the temple, it suggests that when people come into contact with the sanctuary covenant church, that heaven ought to meet earth for those people and our generosity ought to help them in some meaningful ways to see the kingdom of God. Luke paints a picture of this family. And as I read the descriptions of this family, I saw sanctuary. It was diverse. It was multinational. It was multi-tribe. There were rich people and there were poor people. And there were those who were very passionate about witnessing about the resurrection. And then there were others who were really, really passionate about care for the poor. And when you look at their life together in the book of Acts, you always see this tension of should we be witnessing more or should we be caring for the poor more? I believe that real Christianity is caring for the poor. Well, I believe that real Christianity is witnessing about the the, the goodness of Jesus and the resurrection. Does that sound like anybody we know? Brothers and sisters, we are the temple of God. We ought to be where heaven and earth meet. 
And the invisible kingdom of God ought to be more visible in this community because of our life together. There are a couple ways in which Luke describes this early community that I think speak directly to who we are striving to be as a church, and it will affect our generosity. The, the first way that Luke describes this community is a spiritually unified community. That's how he describes them in Acts chapter 4. Here, here's what he said. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. This is the second time that Luke uses this kind of language to describe the early church. Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47 is the longer and more popular way of talking about the, this expression of the church. But when we combine those two passages together, it helps us to understand what it is that this spiritually unified community looked like. This community was believed to be comprised of Jews from all over the diaspora, and people from all over came together to be a part of this community. It was marked by gender diversity and age diversity and racial inclusiveness, and, and, and the conversions numbered in the thousands, so people were coming from all over to be a part of this community. And can you imagine the beauty of that, but can you also imagine the chaos of all these thousands of people coming together with all of their preconceived notions of what church is actually supposed to be about? What was it that allowed them to survive? It was that they became a spiritually unified community. Luke describes in chapter two and again here in chapter four that these believers devoted themselves to four essential elements that you should see in our life here at Sanctuary and that will help us to become a more spiritually unified community as well. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They made time daily for sitting together under God's word so that they might be shaped by God's word. They made time for fellowship. They were in each other's home, sharing meals, getting to know each other in more than a surface way. They, they, they made time for the third element, which was the breaking of bread, which is actually communion. They sat at the Lord's Supper together to understand who Christ was and what Christ had done on their behalf. And they committed themselves to prayer. This is what scholars call the life of the spirit. This early church committed themselves to the life of the spirit. They, when you looked at their rhythms, this was their entire rhythm, sitting under the apostles' teaching, sharing in fellowship together, breaking bread at the Lord's Supper, sh praying together, sitting under the apostles' teaching, sharing in fellowship together, sharing in the Lord's Supper, and praying and as they did that, over time, the, the, all the ideas that came together and all the ways in which people fight, fight for my way is the only way and the best way, those things began to go away. And the Holy Spirit became their guide. And I suggest that in sanctuary, this is a part of our growing up, that we would become a spiritually unified community as we continue to commit ourselves to the teaching of the scriptures, to fellowshipping beyond Sunday morning, to breaking bread at the Lord's table, and committing ourselves to be a community of prayer. How often are we as a community together in prayer? How do we expect to be united and in the same place around where we should go and how we should get there if we very rarely spend time together in prayer? So as a church, 
we should commit ourselves to this life of the spirit so that we might become a more spiritually unified community. And so here's, here's what I'm asking us. I'm inviting us to recommit ourselves to teaching, to sharing in fellowship, to sharing in the Lord's table and prayer. Every Wednesday night, two sisters in our church that I desperately love, Ms. Pearlie and Elder Nicole, meet here at our church at 5 p.m. and they pray. And it's always just the two of them. And they'll walk this block and they'll pray. And I've seen them stand on the corner and I'm like, I think they're praying or at least they're catching up with one another. Uh, (laughs) What would it look like for our church to join those two sisters in lifting up the cares and concern of our community, not just on Sunday, but all throughout the week? I'm inviting us to grow and press into becoming a spiritually unified community because as we grow in generosity, that becomes essential, even more essential. Luke shows us in the book of Acts chapter four that one sign of the spiritual unity of this community was that they grew in generosity. How do we know that they were spiritually unified? It was the generosity that existed among them. Verse 32 says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind, that's spiritual unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. There in the early church, as they sat under teaching and as they fellowshiped together and as they observed the Lord's Supper, And as they pray together, they grew in understanding of God's character and God's work in the world. What they did was they grew in their understanding of God's generosity. And as they did, they grew in their generosity as well. The way in which these believers shared their possession is a clear sign to us that they were of one heart and one soul. They were uh, keenly aware of each other's needs. And they met those needs together. They shared life together, not just in some ethereal sense, but they really got involved in each other's lives. Luke paints a picture for us here of something that we're calling koinonia. It's a deep bond of common purpose. It's a way of being devoted to Christ first and to your fellow believers more than on the surface level. These brothers and sisters were so deeply committed to Jesus that they were drawn to one another and their love for one another welled up in a generosity that overflowed from this community and even impacted those all around them. I I want our life together to be that way as well. And this is not a radical concept. In fact, God had always intended for Israel to be the temple in this way, that they would be the place that was so generous that the world would come and see God, but Israel never got the memo. And the invitation now is ours, that we might be the temple of God. We might be the people of God together in such a way that the world, those who are lost, those who are the last, those who are the least, those who are the lonely, might interact with our church in such a way that they might see God. Those early believers received this instruction, not just for the purpose of meeting needs, but they were instructed in this way as a means of ensuring that they worship God and not stuff. 
They had to begin to view their money and their possessions differently. And I believe that's a part of the work for us together as well, that we have to begin to, be, to see our money differently. You may recall in Romeo and Juliet, young Romeo, the young smooth-talking brother that he was, says this, my bounty is as boundless as the sea. The more I give to thee, the more I have. Now, young Romeo had other things on his mind, but his perspective here is genuine, and it's actually biblical when we think about love and when we think about generosity, that the blessing of generosity is that the more we give, the more we actually have. It gets in the way of the scarcity mentality that we have, that if I hold on to what I have, generosity actually says that the more you hold on to what you have, the, least, the less you actually have, but the more you give away, the more you actually gain. And so the next time you're wondering and struggling with this generosity thing, I want you to put on your best Romeo voice and say that your bounty is as boundless as the sea that the more you give, the more you have, actually. This kind of generosity, the kind that the early Christians were called to, and the kind that I believe we are also called to together, requires a change of heart. Knowing that a changed heart, a heart that has been captured by Jesus, is a generous heart. And so, brothers and sisters, for point of reflection, what is your view of money? Do you see money as your golden ticket? That as long as you have it, people will never be able to tell you no. Do you see money as your lifeboat, your life preserver, your safety net? That as long as I have what I have, the bad things in the world can't happen to me? Or do you see your money as a renewable seed? That someone has given it to me and I get to bless others with it knowing that the more I bless others, God is still faithful to bless me as well. This community was a spiritually unified community. They were an open-handed sharing community, but most importantly, they were an empowered witnessing community. You might be asking, why do we have to talk about money? What does money have to do with the gospel? And Luke reminded us that in this early church, they had really two priorities. One was testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, and the other was meeting the needs of the needy. And Luke describes that with great power, with power that came from the Holy Spirit, they were able to witness about the resurrection, and they were able to address the needs of the poor, both within the community and in the public. The church has ever been one or the other, and we are not allowing ourselves here at Sanctuary to be one or the other either. And we challenge you to grow in generosity in this specific way, specifically because we want to see our mission and vision grow. I shared last week in a message that I'm assuming was much easier to hear that we have a vision that is meant for flying, not walking. But that vision doesn't just happen by abracadabra. And so every time we invite you to give, we're inviting you to invest in the mission and vision of this church that we are inviting you to join what God is doing so that we might be the church that we profess to be. 
And so we, we're hoping that as we talk about generosity over these next few weeks, that you would not see this as a church trying to get more out of me. This is actually us trying to give more to you. We know the blessing it is to be generous to others. And we are simply inviting you to get in the game and not miss out on this blessing. This early church, these brothers and sisters, they saw themselves as committed to the life of the spirit. And when they did, they saw their generosity grow. They saw God's presence among them grow. They saw the healing presence of God in the world grow. And I believe the same can happen here at the sanctuary. And so believe it or not, our priorities today are not much different than that early church that our priorities today are still to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus here in North Minneapolis. And our purpose today is still to respond to the needs of those around us that we see struggling. And so if you consider this to be your church home, we invite you to give and give faithfully and to give regularly so that we might make disciples, so that we might help diverse families to connect, to grow, to serve across barriers of race, class, and gender, so that we might live as witnesses here in North Minneapolis and beyond, so that we can do what we feel called to do and not become simply experts of talking about reconciliation. But the reality is that for some of us, we have no clue how to get started in being generous in this way. I want to conclude today with just three simple reminders for those of you who are struggling to know how do I even begin to get started in this way. The simplest way to become financially generous is simply to begin to practice it. To begin to give first with priority. You're already giving to a number of things, and there are a number of organizations that already benefit from your generosity. But what does it mean for us to call the Sanctuary Covenant Church our home? What does it mean for us to give with priority to the mission and vision of this church? And so the question is always, what if I already give to the Red Cross? Doesn't that mean I don't have to give to my church? There is no biblical evidence that I can find anywhere that says that's true. And so we would invite you to consider giving to the sanctuary with priority, to make us a priority in your giving. You may be asking, but where do I get started? What about the tithe? What does that mean? The second thing I would recommend is that we give a percentage. If you grew up like I did, it was the tithe. It was 10%. But for most people, only 2.7% of the population give a tithe actually give 10% of their, 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 their salary. So find something smaller, but find a percentage and begin to give there. What if it's 3%? What if you just committed to this year, I will give 3% of my income towards the work of the church? Even that small step would change the mission and ministry of this church. And the third way that I would encourage you to give is just to give progressively. If you're 25 and you're starting with 3%, great. But when you get 35 and if you're still giving at 3%, there's something wrong with that. That as you give and as God continues to bless, we would ask that your giving progresses as well. 
that as you see the ways in which God uses your contribution to bless others and to bless you, that you would grow in your giving. Those are very simple, tangible ways that you can begin to give financially. And I believe that as we commit ourselves to that, that Sanctuary's mission and vision would not just run a little bit, but that our mission and vision would begin to fly. Let's pray. Lord, I, I am grateful for this opportunity to speak to our church about your generosity first. God, I'm grateful that we get to challenge each other to grow in difficult ways. God, I'm excited about what I've already seen from the sanctuary over these first 15 years. The ways in which our mission and ministry has blessed this community, has become a model for many churches all around the, the, the country. But God, I know that we're not done. And I know that we are at a critical point in our life, God, where we need more people saying yes to this opportunity to give. So God, in this season and right now, I pray that your word has spoken to the hearts of your people. And I pray, God, that they would, in respond, begin to wrestle and begin to do what you've called us to do. That is, to give a portion of what you've blessed us with already. God, give us an abundant mindset to know that there is more than enough and that you are more than able to bless even the small gift God, this is discipleship. It doesn't feel good always. But God, it's critically important to us becoming the people in the community of faith that you've called us to be. So God, I pray that you would show us that. Help us to know that and grow in this today. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.